here we are, podcast number one, talking about what our intentions are, why we're we doing this, who we intend to talk to, and some of the material that we'll probably cover. So, Sean, why don't we talk a little bit about how our paths came to cross, why it is that, that you and I are talking financial intelligence, and why anyone should listen to what we have to say. I think that's a great, it's a great thing to share. A key moment of the story is going to be on the Great Wall of China, but let's, let's leave that and we'll get there. I think the point of departure for me is signing up for an elective course at Wits Business School in 2003, which was titled Entrepreneurship, and the lecturer was Sean Temlett. And I was keen and eager to learn about what to do if I wanted to start my own business. You were, maybe you take it from there. You were, you were teaching that. And how is it that? How did I get that? There? How did you get there? Did your, did your parents or your school at high school ever send you for psychometric and psycho attitudinal assessment? Yes, my parents did. So my dad did the same thing. He sent me to this lovely lady, Dr. Barbara Fabian. You know, she was very clear about my psychological profile. She said, you could do anything you wanted to, but what you should do is you should become a teacher. All right. So it was written down for you in your psycho assessment, and this was fulfilling it in a way. And I remember looking at my father, and I said, Dad, do you want me to take an oath of poverty at the same time? And I, I discarded that thought. I went to university. I did a fairly generic arts and classic background. Wasn't really sure what exactly I wanted to do. And I spent 14 years avoiding being a teacher. And what I thought I also avoided was taking the oath of poverty. And that resulted in me being, <clears throat> having some fantastic business experience in the financial services industry. Starting off as a bank manager and eventually heading up a big chunk of Investex private banking, transactional banking capability in the private bank. And that was a 14-year journey. And I think I learned about the ins and outs of financial services. I also learned about the ins and outs of risk. I learned the ins and outs of making business decisions, learning, managing with people, and um, really the, the culture and politics of large, powerful businesses. And then I kind of hit a, a real inflection point because I guess maybe I wasn't being true to myself or whatever, but I wasn't as fulfilled as I thought I would be. And I left Investec and I started a string of entrepreneurial ventures. And quite soon after the first one, I got a phone call from a colleague and, and a, a friend of ours at Wits Business School, Professor Mike Ward. And his, his question to me was very simple. He said, do you think that we could create an alternative for our MBA graduates other than going back into corporate South Africa? And that started the journey of integrating my own work experience, my entrepreneurial endeavors into something which was the elective class that you participated in at Wits Business School in the MBA program. And it was specifically designed to give MBA graduates an alternative to going back into blue chip corporate South Africa. 
So I think that's why I ended up sitting in that classroom, because I had no intention of going back to, let's call it the traditional working world of holding down a day job. I had visions of being an entrepreneur and maybe a solopreneur. I can put that name to it now. I didn't think of it at the time, but certainly cutting out my own niche. And that's why your course appealed to me. It was going to be a, a foundation on which to, to look towards that. And in fact, that course uh, was the start of a, of a 10-year relationship, not just with you and I, but also with the two of us with Wits Business School. I ended up spending 10 wonderful years on the teaching staff at Wits, meeting some wonderful MBA graduates. And, you know, even today when people ask me on TV or radio or whatever it is, they say to me, oh, you know, all of those guys that you helped that started some great businesses, you know, did you, you know, did you really take any credit for that? And as I look back, I say, no, I think most of them would have done it without us, in spite of us, in fact. But what a wonderful journey to journey with people like that and to integrate that with our own, with my own experiences. So it, it definitely was a start because I recall that back then I was doing some consulting work in the corporate space at an angle that related to enterprise development and the VE codes with corporates investing in empowerment deals. So there was a lot of, let's call it corporate finance deal structuring in their supply chain which allowed me to apply extensive skills in financial modeling and bringing into that some of the BE codes, et cetera. And you, you invited me to do some guest spots in your entrepreneurship course around how do we bring the empowerment credentials into the, B, into the entrepreneurship space. And I think I might have done a few finance bits and pieces. But that gave me the first taste of being in the classroom and being a teacher, as you referred to it. And I remember thinking at the time, this is, this is quite cool, and I'm not too bad at it. It turned out that I have a tendency to, especially when it comes to working in the corporate space, is to be a bit disagreeable. I, I put that lightly, so to, to kind of push back and that got me in a bit of trouble from a corporate point of view. I suddenly found myself without consulting revenue. And uh, a good friend of ours, Mark Peters, who no doubt will be a guest on our podcast at some future date. I remember Mark phoning me and saying, Justin, do you reckon you can teach this accounting class for me? Because the lecturer who was teaching it just got in my office and told me he was no longer interested. And I remember saying to Mark, Mark, you know what? As a good MBA student, I put my hand up to do anything. And there I was teaching an accounting class at Fitz Business School, thinking this is just a part-time gig. There's something bigger and brighter in my future. And as it turns out now, 12, 13 years later, I'm still teaching that same class, plus many more. But worked out that uh, teaching finance and accounting is and value now and investments and whatever else goes with that. I'm trying to bring some, some trading angles into some of my teaching. We, we've kind of come onto this track, haven't we? I mean, if it's, a, if it's a train track and they've been laid ahead of us, we appeared side by side as teachers. 
I love that analogy of the train of the two tracks on a on a railway track. Because what's beautiful about it, if you look down the length of a railway line, you see how they converge and become one. Um, but they're still two distinct concepts. They, they're still two distinct trains of thought and, and bodies of evidence, aren't they? I really like that. I really like that. Because I think that's why we've come to work so well together, is that we, we have two very distinct skill sets that travel together but separately as well. Are you comfortable with the the sort of the label that we had given each other a few years ago of the gapologist on the one track and the valueologist on on the other track? I've become comfortable with that. I remember you talking about yourself as the gapologist in the entrepreneurship class many years ago and thinking, wow, that is clever, that is unique, that identifies a niche and a space where you operate in, which were all the things that an entrepreneur required. It took me many years to work out that that I see myself as the valueologist. I've become comfortable with that label. And as I look back now, the gapologist and the valueologist side by side looks like those train tracks. So I, I think I would say I'm comfortable with that. I think we should expound on those two concepts in separate uh, in a separate conversation. And then let's let's kind of draw this together. And so so we've had these separate train tracks that that do converge, but never really converge. But they they conceptually are so powerfully drawn together, but also provide wonderful structure for debate as we go down this track together. Yes, on my side, I'm I'm less of a of a numbers person, and really do appreciate the way that you convert many of my thoughts and concepts into the concept of value. And I think that's, I think that we can expound on that um, in a lot more detail as we go along and that our voices will always find that, that relationship between opportunity, challenge, constraint, and the value that's created as we tackle each of those. Well, I definitely look forward to, where we get to talk about what is the gapologist and what is the valueologist. And that might come pretty soon in our agenda so that it gives some context to many of our listeners. I just want to cycle back for a moment because you spoke about the Great Wall of China. So I'll talk a bit more about that here now. Part of a international travel trip with the WITS MBA in 2003 saw us traveling to China to go and explore the world of business. And I, I guess it was on that trip, wasn't it, where we had a beer together, had some conversations, and, and maybe realized there's some future relationship here. I, I don't think at that stage we knew what that entailed. It might have then been a, a game of golf and, and, a, and a wave in the corridor. But that was the, that was the seed, wasn't it? I'm also trying to remember the, the precise moment where I thought that we our, our relationship would shift from from collegiality at Fitz Business School to to something longer term, and I can't I can't put my finger on it. It was just a very natural progression as we both you know have very some very similar uh, things that we do. Uh, we have a very similar set of values, 
And uh, I think it was probably also because our families got on quite well. <laughs> That's always easier. And I think what's coming up for me is, is that there are many shared experiences that we've had that we perhaps take for granted, like, like trips to China, you know, my, my year at, uh, at Duke University in North Carolina, where we can really try and weave not just a, a subject matter dialogue, but something that's got a lot of uh, context, uh, geography, and perhaps even a, some sort of global understanding that we've, that we've acquired over the years. So I look forward to us having those, those conversations. So let me pick it up there, because I have been rattling around with this idea of developing some sort of connection to my student base and often thinking that a lot of the teaching that I do is is in a classroom environment where as soon as the word is spoken, it falls to the floor in the sense that it maybe it lives in the memories of the students and I would suggest probably for quite a short time anyway, but there's no record, no permanent record. There's no going back to see what was spoken about. I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if one, I recorded some of the content and then we're able to make that available to students at a later stage and maybe provide a means of connecting with some of the students. And I also found that I was saying the same things in every class over and over as one does often as a lecturer. So wouldn't it be nice if we can record via podcast or whatever means some of that content? You know, we've had a conversation around, okay, well, let's put together the financial intelligence podcast. I would like to be able to record a lot of the stuff that I would teach in an MBA finance class that might be of interest to a, a broader audience. And also some of the stuff that I would teach at, a, at an entry-level business school where we're dealing with managers who've got no financial experience. And then you spoke about your daughter, Tanya. Maybe you want to pick it up there as to why she kind of became the archetype of maybe the ideal audience or listener. Oh, that's a great opportunity. Thanks. So I follow a a very simple approach, which is I always ask myself who's in the audience and what what is it that the audience uh, or what problem is it that the audience has that, that we can try and help resolve? I use the word resolve often in, in, in rather than the word solve, and we can explain that later down the line. So my daughter um, has, in many important times in my life, asked me questions which have really got me thinking. And I often say probably one of my greatest qualifications is having children between the age currently of 27 and 9. Um, <laughs> it certainly keeps you in touch with different generational thinking. And my daughter said to me the other day, she said to me, Dad, you'll be surprised as a young doctor how intimidated I am by basic financial questions. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I, I'm, I, I can understand human anatomy and I can save lives and deliver babies, but I go into a cold sweat when I think of my own financial circumstances. And I'd love to learn more about that. And so for me, that, that was a big green light and the bell just really rang for me to say, well, as a dad, what a privilege to be able to share some thoughts, uh, not solutions necessarily, but really share some of the tensions that she may experience and to give her some tools that she could use to answer some of those financial questions. So for me, that's a huge privilege. So 
my sense is that the financial intelligence stream is going to be fairly wide. And perhaps that will invite our audience to dip in at various parts of the stream. Sometimes it's going to be pretty lighthearted and and thought-provoking. Sometimes I think it's going to be pretty hectic as we confess some of our own bad financial habits. And then I think there are going to be times when we're pretty contentious about certain financial levers, uh, certain financial uh, rules. I can't think of exactly the right word now, but these kind of um, holy cows that we can and that could be debunked if we have a an open enough perspective just as an example i i'd like to argue that the relationship between risk and reward is not just linear and that the higher the risk the higher your reward and the higher the reward the higher the risk i think that that's not a linear relationship and i think we 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 don't know that we're not taught that it's not a life skill that is explained to us and there are many of these, Justin, and, and I can think of a few, like what is a zero-sum game? You know, what is an arbitrage? These are, these are very important concepts that, that, that fall through the cracks. And perhaps that's, that's where I'm coming from, is to say that the stream is going to be wide enough to answer those questions that my daughter has asked, but also some of those questions that I've had to stand up and answer in front of a PhD panel. And and have the room divided on, you know, whether this is still the right way to be thinking, or if there are new ways of thinking about value, and what I call gapology or the study of of opportunity within constraint. Well, Sean, I think you have you have summed up so many beautiful things there around the financial challenges that your daughter faces, and some key questions that have come up that need to be answered. I remember you having this conversation with me a little while ago where Tanya now is, is working and earning a salary and the challenge she is facing is, well, where do I invest some of this money? Should I be investing it in a pension fund or, or can I do something for myself and I actually don't even know where to start? And as you put that to me, what came up for me is, that is every single student who sits in my class. On the new managers program, which I've been teaching on at Bits now for 12 years, I do a module, I do a session on personal investment. And really what I'm doing there is I'm asking some questions around where is your money invested and you know what returns are you getting and how much will you have when you retire and how much attention do you pay to this? And the response that I get is, I don't know how much is investment invested. I don't know what the returns are. I have no idea what I'll get out of retirement. And in fact, this whole thing is so complicated that I don't even pay any attention to it. And that might be one of the early topics that we cover in quite a lot of detail to say, well, how do you navigate the space from a layman's point of view? Does that, does that sound like a, a challenge that Tanya is grappling with as well? Yes, I think she is. I think at the same time, they are under so much pressure. And so she's a medical doctor and she's in her second year of internship. So I don't think that that she has the time, although I know that she's got the, the intelligence to answer or to engage with many of those questions. The question becomes how much time do you spend on that versus, um, you know, just 
you know, being a good doctor. The, the default has been that our young people are bombarded with marketing, whether it's brokers, agents, advertising that says, you know, put your money here and, and all's going to be well. And I think that's not, that's not sufficient anymore. If I look at the kind of costs of investment advice over the returns, I'm, I'm concerned that, that we don't all have enough confidence and perhaps even time to yes. go and make different financial uh, decisions. So I think the part of the role of this podcast is going to be to, to challenge that, is to say, you know, you can't be lazy about your own finances. You, you need to take responsibility for them. And yes, some thoughts and ways of doing it differently rather than expensively. Well, I agree with you. I think that space can be extremely overwhelming. And it's my intention to simplify and also cover the subject in a way that this is not something you have to spend a lot of time on. If you can be aware of it now and do a few basic things now, it can have a yes. tremendous impact on your wealth creation over the next 10, 15, or 20 years. And it doesn't require you to do something every day. In fact, ideally, you want to be doing nothing every day, but you want to have structured it and got it right up front. That, that for me, is an important subject matter. But I want to use this as a little bit of a segue into another area of material that I think will be very useful on our podcast. Because this is perhaps the difference between you and I as well, where my focus has been very much on, on equity portfolio building, being very active in the markets, even to the extent of trading. And you've been on that track next to that, which has been around building a property portfolio tenants with rental income and I often get asked the question well should I be in property or in equities or should I be renting this or should I be owning my property those questions start to emerge and I think we can have a robust conversation in that space absolutely so you know again that that talks to your circumstances I remember as a young man I I, um, I didn't have any resources available to me and so the only asset class that I felt I could get into was a leveraged class of asset, which was property, fixed property. And I started that before, so before I bought my, before I lived in my own home, I rented out my home. And that set me off on a path which I'd be very comfortable to, to share with people how, how that looks and how that works. You know, I've always laughingly said that everybody should have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. And I think it's a great, I think it's a great institution, the bar mitzvah, because um, as I understand it, at the age of 13, you have a, a wonderful spiritual experience as well as a, a great celebration by the family as you kind of a, achieve some sort of, I don't want to say adulthood, but certainly um, I would say in the context of that, there's a financial maturity that's expected already at the age of 13 in, in my Jewish friends' families. And I remember one Jewish friend, uh, we were having a conversation and I said to him, you know, how did you manage to kickstart your equity and investment portfolio? And he said, well, when you're 13 years old and your family gives you a whole lot of money, they expect you to manage that money properly. And I thought, wow. And here was this man, he was, he was in his middle 20s. And he had built up a serious equity portfolio, but he had also invested in a wide range of asset classes. Now, not all of us are going to be in that position, but if we can simulate that younger and earlier, 
and understand the, the, the principles of compounding and so forth, then I think you know that's that's an important lesson, and and we can we can talk about that. So you mentioned the word compounding. It's so simple. The concept is so simple. What I've experienced over time is just because something is simple, does it mean doesn't mean that it's easy. And the thing with compounding is it requires time and patience. And since we live in a world that is very much about now, there's not much of this time and patience around. In the world of instant coffee, how do we appreciate the, the process of filtered coffee? Is the time, the slow brew. And time, if you're on the right side of, of the interest rate, time is, is your friend and compounding is, is an amazing is an amazing principle and, and everybody knows it. Uh, and I'm so, you know, I, I'm finding myself more and more as a teacher that the principles and the concepts that we are teaching are not that difficult to understand, but they are quite difficult to practice. Yes. That's the simple yet not easy. 